The Startup to Scale Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. My guest today is Leanne Kemp, the CEO at Everledger, an award-winning digital transparency scale-up who use blockchain, artificial intelligence, intelligent labeling and the internet of things to provide solutions that increase transparency in global supply chains. Leanne is also the chief entrepreneur at the office of Queensland, Australia, and an advisor to both the OECD and the World Economic Forum. So uh, Leanne, a very warm welcome. Thank you for having me, Gary. Busy times, busy times, and I'm glad to be connected from my home city here in Brisbane. So beautiful one day, perfect the next, as they say. A truly long distance episode, this one, the benefits of modern technology. Leanne, let's begin with the concept behind Everledger. Why did you launch the company and what's your underlying value proposition? Well, look, there are very real problems to be solved in supply chains and particularly in the diamond industry, when we think about some of the most pronounced movies of the last decade or two decades, of course, it's blood diamonds, the ability to track from the source of the mine right the way through to the retail network will help to provide not only the story of the diamond, but when a consumer asks the question, where does it come from? Then finally, we have technologies that are available to us in the world now, as you so rightfully said in the introduction, blockchain, artificial artificial intelligence, machine vision, all of these great technologies coming together to be able to answer that question, where does it come from? And, of course, we have supply chains in the world that opaque and opaque by their very nature because they're quite secretive or very complex. But we set out to build a platform, a platform of provenance to help with not only just telling the story of the object but also to help really understand risk chains, you know, supply chains that have an element of risk around them, whether that be in the protection of people or planet, uh, child labour being the source of angst across the world, and then also, of course, sustainability, climate, environment, and my most fabulous commentary, which will be circular economy. This new paradigm that everyone, particularly in supply chains, procurement, economic transition, will effectively bring on board as a new transition for climate and environment. Now, this uh, focus on mining and the diamond industry, is that the business of Everledger or is that what, just one use case? We're in the business of trust and we've built a vertical applicable application or a platform that not only looks at diamonds, but we started with diamonds and coloured gemstones, emeralds, rubies and sapphires. We work in the high-end fashion industry as well, in textiles, in wine, of course, and even art. You can see what we're motivated for, Gary. Maybe it's everything I like to drink, wear, watch. (laughs) (laughs) No, but there's a serious note to the business, of course, and that is answering to those highly complex supply chains in the world that are opaque. And really the purpose of our company is to bring trust into the digital realm and to ensure that there is transparency through trade. Now, you mentioned the circular economy a few moments ago. You wrote a World Economic 
forum article about the the circular economy, which combines blockchain, IoT, and other fourth industrial revolution technologies. You claimed that that would change the world by 2030. So, how exactly is this combination of uh, technologies and and this concept of circular economy going to change the world in the next decade? Well, I would say that. COVID delivered the gift to us in terms of nationalisation or sovereignty of supply chains. We saw it in the medical space when, of course, countries closed their borders to trade and even the movement of its citizens. And at the forefront of that concern, of course, was where do things come from? And if we can't get it from one of our trading partners globally, then we need to be able to make it locally. And of course, if some of the most rarest metals and minerals in the world uh, are only being mined from certain countries in the world, then there needs to be an entirely new look. And that is upon how do we transform waste to value new material sciences when we start thinking about even single-use plastics with water bottles, of course, that are clogging up our riverbeds and our oceans can now be completely transformed into construction material uh, and even cyclone-grade construction material So there is a large sort of sense of understanding that actually products have a karmic circle. Sometimes it's not just about the first use, but it's their second time use where we're able to avoid it being just dumped in the ocean or even someone digging a great big hole and burying it underground. And the circular economy plays to that exact tune. How do we reuse, repurpose, recycle, remanufacture, and in fact, That concept is so important today, more so than ever, particularly as we're starting to see borders of economies being completely closed for not just weeks, but now months, if not even the entirety of 2020. Well, that's a great vision. It's a vision that I really can't argue with or a great ambition for the world. One of the things I've come across recently is Gartner Gartner wrote last year that blockchain fatigue was setting in. They argued there's a lack of commercially viable use cases for blockchain technology. I know things have moved on a lot in the last few months. Why are you so convinced that blockchain will enhance supply chains and benefit the global economy and the global ecology? Look, I think blockchain, to a certain extent, by media and even some researchers have been misplaced. They see it as an application, but the reality is that the power of blockchain resides in its protocols. And just as the internet was born and HTTP gave birth to what we call a browser, that SMTP gave birth to applications like email, blockchain and the protocols associated with it will transform the World Wide Web. So from the World Wide Web will be the World Wide Ledger. And undeniably, there's immaturity in commercial-grade applications on blockchain. And I think within the next number of years, not decades, number of years, we will start to see the trust enablement at a protocol level being born within the W3C or the web protocols. And people and consumers and even the users of the internet, rightfully so, won't even know that they're using blockchain because it would be driven by a protocol. So when we first invented we the royal we and Tim Berners-Lee of course was involved in the invention of the internet we certainly weren't leaping forward into the application space first we were looking at it from its core protocols and I think we were too quick in terms of the media to just jump straight out into 
the application-facing requirements when the reality is it's about the protocol, the connective tissue that blockchain will give. It will give the ability to build these business networks across the web that are trusted, that sort of central gauge of truth where we can start to bring together siloed and connected devices in a way that is trustful, where not one person is in control, but everybody has control. And that's really what the internet will do to the next generation of the web. And how do you see the increasing tension between the West and China and between the United States and various nations and regions impacting all of this in terms of trust? There seems to be a breakdown of trust between countries and between regions. Your vision is for increased transparency and increased trust based on the ledger. Look, I think the geopolitical movements of large governments and countries in the world um, certainly raise concerns and eyebrows in various different ways. And to a certain extent, COVID and, you know, the coronavirus has given a heightened sense of anxiety, particularly around digital trade and cybersecurity. But for me, I think the largest signalling when I think about provenance and the work we're doing in supply chain traceability and whether that becomes nationalised and there's a sovereignty to our supply chains because of borders are closing, that you know China signalled a really important moment when they said to the world, we're closing our borders to waste. And, of course, this was well before COVID. But at the same time, they also appointed a federal minister for circular economy. So a federal minister for circular economy has been appointed in China and has been in that seat for quite some time. So there is an economics at play here when it comes to provenance. It's not necessarily just about the story of an item. It, in fact, goes deeper. There's an economic transition here where waste can be converted into value. And some countries have recognised that, and I would imagine... Countries like Australia, where we have huge natural resources, we have a fantastic prosperity that comes from that international trade, but we're also a nation of great engineers, astronomers, and even inventors. And I would say that parts of technologies like blockchain help us to be able to take our clean, green, trusted environment here in Australia with no child labour, and we have very open common law constructs, to be able to take that out to the world with our trade partners is of absolute interest, which is why we've seen more recently, in fact, only in the last 10 odd days, an incredible free trade agreement being signed between the Australian government and, of course, the UK government post-Brexit. And, of course, we're doing that because we have Commonwealth trust at bay. But who would say that we can't have now a digital trade window that, of course, would enable the fast movement of goods with a complete story of where it comes from embedded within that object. And that's a pretty exciting moment to be living right now because blockchain does have that maturity. And when we combine it with artificial intelligence and IoT devices, finally, the product can speak its own truth. I love your enthusiasm. I wish I could speak to you every Monday, first thing in the morning, to get my week started on such an upbeat note. Moving on from that... I'm fascinated by the role, the concept even, of chief entrepreneur for Queensland. Is this a template for how governments and businesses need to cooperate in the post-pandemic world? Well, the chief entrepreneur's office operated in a pre-pandemic world. So I would imagine, you know, imagine a world where innovation no longer exists. And it's hard to imagine a world like that. But 
we do have really progressive policy makers and governments in the world, and I'll shout out to the UK because, of course, it has Bayes with its energy and industrial strategy that very clearly signals a 100-year living policy and calls out at the very top end of town a technology like artificial intelligence. So if a government is building a road, it looks to those northern star markers to say, well, how does artificial intelligence help us to design or inform or create or even engineer this piece of infrastructure? So the Chief Entrepreneur's Office is a program of works that sits, of course, under the Minister for Innovation, and we become the connective tissue across the state. Now, we've invested $755 million in innovation through the office of Queensland's Chief Entrepreneur and Advanced Queensland. And and our job is to make that connective tissue work. So to have a healthy, vibrant ecosystem around innovation, it takes more than a bunch of kids with a hoodie and a beanbag, of course. And you don't leap into the future like a Silicon Valley. It takes connections with universities, corporate startups, scale-ups, PhDs, uh, scientists, government and, of course, the entrepreneurs themselves. And that's our role. We have 35,000 of them here across Queensland. And we look not only to developing new technologies but also partnering very deeply on scientific breakthroughs. And to the testament of the government in the creation of the office, of course, we were one of the first three universities in the world to look towards testing on a vaccine for COVID. And we're now moving directly and have been for quite some time into human trials. So Little Brisbane, of course, is a little speck in the corner of the globe, way down under, and here we are punching way above our weight. You can easily look to Australia for other innovations. Wi-Fi, of course, came from Australia, and so too did the cochlear implant for, of course, hearing. And so we know and understand the importance in investment and innovation and nearly approaching a billion dollars in a short period of time, you'll see some pretty incredible, I think most of the world calls them unicorns, but we call them zebras here, the rare but real <laughs> creatures that march the planes, not those mythical ones with a horn on top of their heads. I will look out for some of these uh, so-called zebras emerging from uh, Brisbane and the wider, uh, the wider region down under. You mentioned to me that the only thing an entrepreneur does really well is timing. So how do you go about encouraging entrepreneurs to do the right things at the right time? I think just as much as you spend pontificating about the idea, you must spend triple the amount of time on researching, you know, researching, of course, the economic impact, the challenge or the problem that you're solving. And again, it's not about what you're selling. It's about what the person is willing to buy. So we were quite fortunate in the diamond industry that year upon year, of course, Bain has written research reports for the better part of the last decade. And there have been many innovations attempts that, of course, have tried to coerce an industry that's 500 years old in the making. But to walk into an industry and to suggest that you're disruptive, that entrepreneurism or even innovation is risk, then of course no one is going to look you in the eye and take the risk on you to be able to innovate. So I think it is about the timing, spending the time in the research, but to also be willing enough to engage in a co-evolution, right, to encourage your core customers, whether that be consumer facing or as an industry as a whole, to be able to find those where you can align on the value and values of an industry. So We, of course, 
value very deeply transparency, trust and provenance and we also create value that with that trust, consumers are willing to pay more for the diamond. So it is as much about the timing as it is about the alignment of value and values within an organisation, particularly if you're embarking upon a blue ocean strategy. Because it is a lot more complicated and takes a, a decent set of entrepreneurial spirits as well as funding and timing to embark upon that red ocean strategy. And Leanne, what's your vision for Everledger? How will the business grow between now and June 2025? It's fair to say that in 2015, in the heart of London, when I first created Everledger, there were many blockchain companies that were looking at the space. And we've held very core to our vision and we've never pivoted. So it's very clear to me we're building a platform of provenance to enable traceability of some of the world's most precious objects and assets. And as we ask the question, where does it come from, it also begs to differ, where does it go to after it leaves me, the circular economy? I'd like to see a transparency that is brought into international trade where we can measure not only the cost of an object, but also how do we ensure that value is created and a consciousness around people and planet. So what's a fair wage for fair work and what is the impact that this product is having on planet, CO2 markers, water that's being used, all of that should really come together. And we think about the textiles industry, I might go to a shop and pick up a jacket and I can look on a label and it can tell me whether it's dry cleanable or not, but also how much polyester and cotton and mixed blends are in it. Well, why don't we on labelling have the ability to see how much water has been used, the type of dye that's been used, and even the type of labour that's been used. And once we have that actually showing directly and consciously to the consumer, it will begin to change the entire way we think, but most importantly, it'll change the entire way we act. Now, who are the entrepreneurs and business leaders that you most admire and why? I would say I admire those that aren't on the front pages of Time magazine or Forbes. It's the quiet achievers. It's the 50 Tanzanian mining women that have artisanal small-scale mines that are really creating economic prosperity for their community. It's regional Queensland where farmers tinkering in the shed to solve a very real problem that are farmpreneurs. So they're the ones that actually give a yielded set of inspiration to me. And it's also, of course, the families and the mums and the return to work parents that, of course, yield some really great connections in my mind about how we can build a far more diverse sort of way upon which we can work and also bring new ideas into the company or into the country or even into citizens. Wow. That was not the answer I expected. That's very interesting. Almost everybody else I uh, asked that kind of question of comes up with some well-known, you know, usually tech entrepreneur, usually from the States. So um, that's a very interesting um, response. I feel uh, inspired by much of what you shared with me. In terms of the ideas that you draw upon then, you're obviously out and about amongst many communities you know, involved in Davos and OECD. Are there any blogs or books uh, or journals that are your kind of go-to source for innovation and inspiration? I would say because I'm involved so heavily with the OECD and the World Economic Forum, 
I'm so privileged in the communication and the conversations I have with real people one-to-one and it's in those fluid conversations where so much is learned. Most definitely, I would say I look towards the communal strength of thought. So I do find it interesting if you could pick the right people to follow on Twitter or engage in conversations that aren't necessarily written in localised papers. There also brings really interesting thought leadership to the forefront um, there isn't really a journal that I would think in the forefront of my mind that actually comes to truth for me, but I certainly read various different fact and fiction books and I find inspiration from the words on the page. And it's often not necessarily what's being said, it's actually what's not being said is the most inspirational when you start to think about those awkward soundbite moments when you get to stop and think about what was the real thought behind those words. Lovely. Okay, well. Leanne, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode and sharing with me your optimistic vision, your vision for a sustainable future. And and you've come up with so many ideas that uh, will take me a little bit of time to to process, actually, but uh, a very inspiring way for me to start the week. Well, you know, Gary, they always say that entrepreneurs are seen as the glass half full type people. But and even if people look at my glass and they think she must be crazy because there's only a drop of water in the bottom, how can it be half full? And the reality is that it's not about how much water is in the glass. It's the fact that entrepreneurs and seasoned innovators, guess what, Gary, they know where to find the water. (laughs) Well, stay crazy. It suits you, Leanne. This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent.